exactly. He's captured by a uh, little shop of horror plant, but uh, anyway, <laughs> eventually. <laughs> Love the little shop of horror reference. Personal favorite. Carbo represents people who are not telling the truth or trying to deceive us such that, so that nothing can be done to correct the problem. Of course. Putting yourself into the shoes of Thermo. I, I, actually, I don't know if he truly has shoes, but figuratively speaking, putting yourself in the yes. shoes of Thermo. I think, I think he has little shoes. He does have little shoes. He does. Testing, testing. Hey, I'm Ian. And I'm Sophia. And welcome to Talking with Green Teachers. This is the Environmental Education Podcast, where we discuss recent developments, big ideas, and creative approaches to teaching green. In this episode... As a writer, I'm, I'm walking a very fine line hmm. between, you know, scaring the kids too much and also just telling the story like it is i mean it, it i mean it is something something that kids maybe can be introduced to but it's it's something that they uh, during their young lives they should be enjoying their childhood and youth it's something that we want them to be responsible for but yet at the same time we don't want them to get depressed and down thinking that there's nothing that really can be done Instantly, Dr. Key recognized the thermometer, the jet engines, and the cameras from the Air Force surplus that Joshua had collected. He and Joshua stared in disbelief at the machine, apparently brought to life by the lightning bolt's electrical charge. Story 1. This is a passage from World of Thermo, Thermometer Rising, the first book in a series written by Guy Walton, longtime meteorologist at the Weather Channel and author of Children's Cli-Fi. What follows is Ian's conversation with Guy, interspersed with excerpts from book one. Let's start with a game of word association. Actually, phrase association, it's two words. What do you think of when you hear the phrase climate change? Okay, well, the longer answer to this is that it is week-to-week weather that we are not used to seeing. I'll just give you an example. We just recently had the Texas freeze, and uh, that is definitely an extreme in a weather event for the state of Texas that they are not used to seeing. And that is uh, because of it was what it was, and we had records, record temperatures, record snow amounts. Now people are still two weeks after the event and not getting fresh water. That's millions, actually hundreds of millions of, do- of dollars worth of damage, dozens of deaths, and plenty of hardships for just about everyone in the, the state. That, so when we hear the word climate change, to me, that is about whether that certain regions or any region of the world is uh, not used to seeing. And there's obviously a lot of emotion connected with extreme weather events. And just hearing the phrase climate change, what sorts of emotions just immediately pop into your mind? Okay, uh, fear, foreboding, not so much for me, myself, and I. I mean, for Hmm. for those three people. (laughs) It's basically for humanity in the long run, fear uh, at my age. Now for, I I can't really, I, I can pretend to be a young person. (laughs) <laughs> but for a younger person, I would imagine it's uh, 
it's fear of not having a good quality of life as I get older because of sea level rise and lack of resources and uh, that sort of thing. And we hear so much about climate anxiety. That's another phrase that has really become, I hate to use the word popular, but certainly common in the modern lexicon. And you use words like fear and foreboding. I would imagine that that's pretty standard for a lot of young people, say people who are under the age of 20, under the age of 15. They feel that fear and foreboding, and it would seem that your books are a response to that. I would like to say that um, when we heard, hear the uh, phrase climate change, and in our minds, we think of uh, the fear of the unknown. Uh, the key to the, uh, to the there, there is uh, the phrase fear of the unknown, there's fear. But if we can particularly know what we're fearing and know what we're getting into, then some of that fear is going to be alleviated. So anyway, what I'm trying to do is alleviate the fear, or this is one purpose for the books, is to alleviate fear among young people and they, so that they can face the problem head on for what it is. And of course, with elementary kids, especially a lot of elementary kids, uh, their span of attention is there very, very much not that long. <laughs> no. It's very tough to get a kid. It's very tough to get a, a kid to read a textbook uh, from beginning to end, even if you're only assigning them maybe one or two chapters per, per day. So things have got to be interesting. And ever since man crawled out of caves, or even before then, people have been telling stories to all sorts of people from babies to, you know, to from womb to the tomb. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's, it, they, they, they interest people. And so if you, uh, so I got uh, interested in cli-fi before there was such a thing as cli-fi. Yeah, so what is cli-fi? It's climate fiction. Indeed. It's short for climate fiction. And oh, of what I was thinking back in 2013 when I started to write the, the first book is how can I give back to kids or how can I tell kids uh, about what I've been, what my main interest in, in the adult life has been, which is uh, climate change, the cri climate crisis. How can I pique their interest? Well, I was thinking back to when I was that young, and what would interest me, of course, would be very good books. And this was at the time, I suppose, when uh, the Harry Potter books were being written. Right. And, uh, and before that, I read Lord of the Rings by uh, Tolkien, and that was when I was a teenager. Uh, of course, I'm not that great of a writer as a writer of those books, but then after... By about the time I was still writing the first book in 2015, 2016, noticed the word of the phrase cli-fi beginning to pop up, and which meant that several different writers uh, were beginning to write the same, come to the conclusion at the same time that in order to write uh, or, or give people good information about the, the climate crisis or to pique their interest, they were writing narratives that were not mainly dystopian narratives about the future that weren't necessarily things that were gonna to come to pass or have come to pass, but could come to pass. And uh, that would pique the general public's interest. So all these different novels and stories came together in what is considered to be the one phrase of cli-fi or climate fiction. And the key word there, of course, is could. Things that could come to happen, and many of us have seen the models from outfits like the IPCC and 
they paint a pretty stark picture of the future. But we are still in that window of opportunity, albeit shrinking with each passing day, of being able to react with enough time to avoid some of the worst predictions laid out in some of the models. Talking with Green Teachers is produced by Green Teacher, a nonprofit that has been enhancing environmental education since 1986. For only $32 a year, you can join our global network of passionate environmental educators, receive each issue of our quarterly magazine, and gain exclusive access to our vast archive of webinars and magazine back issues. All proceeds go back into the organization to support our vision of helping each successive generation of young learners become more environmentally literate than the last. To learn more, visit greenteacher.com. Deep within a dark and enormous cave, Carbo, the carbon molecule, slept peacefully, just as he had been doing for the last 60 million years. Before that, Carbo had been very much awake. Story 3 In your world of thermobooks, you're looking into the recent past as well as into the not far future, but up to the year 2100 and beyond. Just going backwards from there a bit, though, take us into your process of coming up with the story and the characters. You describe the characters as being cute and relatable, and I certainly agree with that. Where did these characters come from? Well, the, the whole work is a series of, uh, it's, a, it's an allegory, and uh, we have on one end uh, Thermo, who's actually uh, creation. And by the way, I, I wanted to uh, create these books sort of like as an homage or thank you for to the uh, Keeling family for uh, starting to measure carbon in the atmosphere from uh, Mauna Loa, or at least the, the Keeling, uh, the Keeling, David, Dr. David Keeling uh, did that. But uh, what Thermo is, Thermo represents us as a species or our entirety trying to measure carbon in the atmosphere and measure temperature and do all these measurements to see exactly where we are as far as the climate crisis goes and uh, and uh, also to prevent it from getting out of hand. So the characters are, is, if you've ever seen um, an old fashioned uh, porch thermometer, they were usually rectangular in shape and uh, uh, had a big bulbous, you know, mercury thermometer on there and you could actually read, read the units very well. Well, this, was, this is actually a uh, porch thermometer that's come to life. Uh, in a in cartoonish way, and uh, let's see, he's very much like, um, not many people remember the uh, figure of uh, Gumby. Oh, yes. Uh, back in the 1960s. Some people do. And so he's, he's, he's wide-eyed and bushy-tailed, and he's very curious about things, but he's very naive about uh, human behavior. And uh, he's, he's robotic in nature, but he's almost like Commander Data, I suppose, from Star Trek. And he's trying to he's trying to find out stuff about himself. He's trying to he's trying to find out about uh, the climate. He knows he was created by his father, Doctor uh, Key. Emmanuel Key is uh, Doctor uh, uh, David uh, Keeling's uh, uh, moniker, and uh, he's trying to find he's trying to do his best to help uh, not only not only his creator, but his friends who are uh, humans. And uh, of course we've got in this fictitious universe, we've got other, other uh, inanimate objects coming to life like clouds and trees and 
just about everything else that he can speak to. Uh, even the, uh, I think uh, he eventually gets a, uh, a helper who's a female version of himself called Therma, and she speaks to uh, stone images from uh, Easter Island, those down there. So there's just different things that uh, they interact with to, to entertain kids and, and, and adults alike, I think. And the main nemesis, of course, is Carbo. And I think most people can put two and two together and see why that makes sense. But tell us a bit about Carbo. Right. Well, Car- Carbo is a uh, fictitious, uh, of course, molecules could, could never become the size of a a beach ball or, or be seen by human eyes. But uh, in this fictitious world, Carbo is a, a, a molecule that actually gains sentience. And uh, all it does is, well, he just wants to release his friends into the atmosphere. So he tries to trick human beings into releasing more of his friends. And he originally got released from a as a stack of a, a locomotive going out west in uh, 1870. He was dug up in a Pennsylvania coal field, and now he got released. Now he wants to get more released, so he's trying to help humans find oil and coal, and he's trying to manipulate human minds so they invent automobiles and, and other machines. And uh, basically, basically, Carbo is the embodiment of uh, human greed, and, uh, and allegorically, uh, we can see how we're doing all this stuff ourselves. and at the end of each of these little short stories, I say, well, there's no such thing as a malevolent molecule. We're doing a pretty good <laughs> job at you know, self-destruction, but you can kind of see how silly, how silly we are through this silly character of uh, Carbo. Do we feel any sympathy for Carbo at any point? Well, in the books, that's, that's, that's where, as a writer, I'm having a little difficulty uh, making Carbo as mean, as bad as I can, because <laughs> uh, we really shouldn't re- give, uh, at this point in, uh, in, in the, the climate crisis, we shouldn't give any of these people quarry. Uh, in other words, for the uh, energy companies that are not changing or for the industrialists like I could mention Koch brothers or mm. or anybody else who's tried to uh, keep things the way they are and, and especially when you go into the Trump years I mean I started to write these books even before Trump came along and uh, Rex Tillerson and, and other people who wanted to do uh, you know uh, half trillion five hundred dollar billion dollars deals with Russia to keep the uh, oil spigots flowing and the things of where they are just to gain profit. And of course, uh, if you look at, uh, and I think I might, might have gone into this one, one or two of the stories, went, uh, went into uh, trying to keep internal combustion engines uh, rolling so that there would be a market for oil. And I, I did that. I've done that. Well, I'm, I'm, tr- I'm trying to do that in the third book, but uh, we, we see that. So back to the question, you know, sometimes we do eventually get a sympathy for uh, Darth Vader type characters. Definitely. And this is definitely something that we don't really want to do. Now, we don't eventually at the end of book three, I try to instead of killing Carbo off. I mean, having, you know, going back to uh, you go back to the uh, Greek mythology of of the gods killing other human beings, that sort of thing. I don't exactly kill him off. We try to uh, exile him back to being trapped in a plant for all eternity, and and we hope he won't be dug up again. Yeah, carbon recapture. 
Exactly. He's captured by a uh, little shop of horror plant. But uh, anyway, <laughs> eventually. <laughs> Love the little shop of horror reference. Personal favorite. Hey, it's Ian. I'm just here to let you know about two of our newest books, Teaching Kids About Climate Change and Teaching Teens About Climate Change. Each one is kind of like an educator's toolbox with ready-to-use hands-on lessons focused on four core dimensions of climate change. Visit greenteacher.com to get your copies. We also have special rates available for bulk orders, and all proceeds go back into the nonprofit. Foon had already strengthened into a tropical storm, an opportunity to take on an alter ego, a sort of split personality. You can call me Andrew, Foon shouted to the sky. Story 19. You mentioned some of the key events since 2016, but this book series begins in 1870 and goes up in book one to 2005. What are some of the other key events in book number one, Temperature Rising? Well, uh, we try to introduce the world, well, kids and the world to different uh, weather phenomenon that has really, they all throughout human history that we've been frightened of, of these, these things. Mm. Uh, you know, thunderstorms, uh, introduce, you know, the children to the, the clan of storms and, uh, Foon, which is sort for typhoon, the, uh, hurricane monster. These are natural, natural monsters, you know, in, in chapter seven, which is called, uh, it's, it's about a, it's a lecture that Thermo's uh, creator, Dr. Key gives Thermo and saying, well, these have always been with us. You're trying to control these things but uh, they're, they're beyond your control, Thermo. And so what you should try to do is educate your human friends and others to steer around them, but yet Thermo tries to keep on, uh, on controlling them throughout the series. The other key events as far as history goes would be uh, first uh, Hurricane Camille from 1969. We have the tornado event, a uh, big tornado event in, in my lifetime, the April 1973 tornado outbreak that killed so many people. Right. And then, then we have uh, a little bit later on Hurricane Andrew in 1992. And let's see, going into some climate crisis events, at the end of the book, we kind of leave off with uh, Hurricane Katrina. And politically, we have uh, one of the first big things is Ronald Reagan taking the solar panels off the White House in the 1980s. And I refer to that era of an era where it seems like we could have done something about the climate crisis early on to nip this in the bud, but yet we did not. And now we're teetering on the brink of uncertainty and uh, about where this can really lead in uh, 2021, and we just don't know what's really going to happen. I, I can't really say for sure, and I'm sure, Ian, uh, you can't really, can't really foretell in the future where we're going to land. Nope. So we're just at a big crossroads right now. And that's about I'm trying to think of any, anything else from, uh, from book one. Well, those are certainly significant ones. Right. We do go back into Arrhenius and... Uh, and how the uh, try to define what global warming is and how it's how it's occurring and and what uh, climate change is and greenhouse gases. And we, we go into a little bit of science for the kids at the beginning of the book as well. And the whole thing basically, the whole thing basically is a supposed to be a history of climate change all the way from uh, you know when we first discovered what was going on back in the 1900s. Then up to book two and then really get into a lot more history recent history 
after that in book two. One of the big things that you touch on in that second book is the disinformation. And pretty important, I think, to make the distinction between misinformation, which is just being misinformed, and disinformation, which, of course, is deliberate. How do you handle disinformation in writing these stories for kids? Because there's so much you can unpack there, and it's at quite a sophisticated level. How can kids understand these attempts by people like the Koch brothers to dissuade views about science that is very clear-cut? Well, that's pretty easy to answer. We try to do that through the character of Carbo and his minions. Mm. And uh, in order for more carbon to be released into the atmosphere, Carbo keeps, Carbo and his, uh, I, I almost wanted to call them uh, hinge molecules, but we just call them like henchmen, hinge molecules. Yes. Uh, let's see, uh, uh, like gassy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you are the ones. Uh, they, they, uh, they think of ways to uh, deceive people by not really telling truths and uh, getting as much, much disinformation out there as possible, like disinformation about the solar maximum. I think I have one of those in the stories about sunspots. Or, uh, yes. That's what Carbo, Carbo does, or that's, that's actually... That's actually, Carbo, like I said, Carbo represents people who are not telling the truth or are trying to deceive us such that, so that nothing can be done to correct the problem. Of course. Green Teacher's main office is located on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabek, Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga peoples. This territory is covered by the Williams Treaty. This operation produced ethanol fuel a mixture of alcohol and gasoline to power cars and trucks, and maybe even Thermo's own jet engines. Story 28. Altogether, very heavy stuff, needless to say. Climate change is a major crisis. It, I, I know there's some people who say we shouldn't really even use the phrase climate change. It's climate disaster. It's climate disruption. Oh, I, yeah, the climate crisis. Uh, it, it is very heavy stuff, and... Uh... As a writer, I'm, I'm walking a very fine line hmm. between, you know, scaring the kids too much and also just telling the, the story like it is. I mean, it, it, I mean, it is something, something that kids maybe can be introduced to, but it's, it's something that they, uh, during their young lives, they should be enjoying their childhood and youth. It's something that we want them to be responsible for, like nagging their kids to buy an electric vehicle or, or, or making sure that they become responsible enough to, to recycle. But yet at the same time, we don't want them to get depressed and down thinking that there's nothing that really can be done. Of course. Well, I think the visuals of the book, especially the first book, you've got 34 chapters, one illustration per chapter. And I think the visuals really lighten the tone really nicely. Tell us a bit about how the visuals came together. I, I, you know, I, I wish that I could, that it would, it would have offhand, it would probably take another year to do another 34, 35 visuals for the second book. Yeah. But the visuals are also there to both entertain and to tell the story and to kind of lighten the, lighten the mood of the book uh, to a certain degree. Sure. Uh, they can get a little cartoonish, but they are there to uh, peak interest and each one of them was beautifully done by a young lady from the philippines named Alyssa Josue, and she did an excellent job with her. well we, we we went back and forth we communicated obviously a lot on, on the look but on the look of the characters and the, the look of, of each illustration 
as it pertains to, to the story or story material. And by the way, each particular chapter is mainly referencing just one, no more than about one or two points about climate change per chapter so that the information doesn't get stuffed stuffed as it would in a uh, uh, like in a textbook where you've got so much information coming at you at once uh, it's, it's like almost like a forest for the trees effect where you're not learning very much because there's just too much coming at you and i found uh that when i was learning uh sometimes the textbooks would just get uh, a little bit overwhelming uh, when i was young eventually eventually not so much so when i got older but when i was in the second third fourth fifth grade it was it would seem like it had that was so. Yeah, too many graphs, I think, can turn a 10-year-old off pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Although as a meteorologist for 30 years with the Weather Channel, you've seen your fair share of climate temperature graphs, precipitation charts, and the rest. Uh, yes, yes, I, uh, of course. I'd, I would not have been able to become a meteorologist unless I had uh, aced my uh, calculus exams and been able to uh, interpret lots of complicated uh, physics charts and I've got a degree in mathematics, so I mean, an undergraduate degree in mathematics, so I know, I know that uh, you have to kind of plow through that stuff. But it's interesting in its own right. But you have to you have to learn. Absolutely. Looking ahead, and this is within the narrative of the story, which mirrors real life. You touch on in this forthcoming third book some of the social and political strife and upheaval that may happen in worst-case scenarios. Where does that third book go in terms of the social and political unrest? Well, in an almost, uh, it's not even a worst-case scenario. Uh, True. We touch on uh, overpopulation and some other things that may actually get be, uh, be cut or left on the kitchen floor, so to speak, yeah. when the book's finished. But we, we touch on a pot potential wars, like, for example, a potential war between India and China if those two nations start fighting over water because the Himalayas have changed. And since those two nations, I believe, have nuclear weapons, it gets out of hand and then, then you get down to the point where 90% of the world's population <laughs> are killed in the in book three. And But yet people come back and they learn from their mistakes by the time we get into the early 22nd century or it takes 100 years. And there's just other things that could come about. I, I had no idea, for example, that when I was writing book two or into book three, that uh, disease might become such a big part. And so I actually wrote in the early part of book three something about COVID-19, which was <laughs> a terrible story about Carbo and a couple of his gang going down to see a uh, growing, growing to, to see what uh, some viruses were doing in New York, New York State. And Carver was upset that not as many of his minions were being released from the ground because in 2020, because of COVID-19, and we, we sort of go into that. But anyway, did write that uh, diseases like Zika virus and uh, other things might come to the fore because of climate crisis. And that too may diminish a population by, by quite a bit if we're not careful. Uh, so there's a lot of dystopian things that might come to pass. And of course, as everyone knows, if we have about 20 feet of sea rise and rising towards the year one, uh, 2100, because all of a sudden the Greenland ice caps are melting quite rapidly and start melting Antarctica ice as well, 
uh, we get all sorts of stories about sea level rise and hurricanes and storms and, you know, places like Miami going underwater. <laughs> so, uh, and of course, uh, being that it's the world of Therma, we, we actually see that the Sahara starts taking over portions of Africa and, and in Egypt. Uh, in one story, uh, people cannot survive there because it's getting too hot and too dry. So it's a lot of dystopian things to think about, and it's stuff that we definitely, I think, we can avoid, according to still a, a lot of our best scientists like Dr. Catherine Hayhoe and Dr. Michael Mann. And they, just as an aside, they discount people who totally throw up their hands and say that we, we shouldn't be doing anything right now We should because it's just too late, we should be, be giving up. So that's why, uh, even though things go very, very badly for us, in the next hundred years, the human race still comes out very well in, in the long run. Well, humans are many things, and one of those things is resilient. Hi there. You might recognize my voice from such podcasts as the one you're listening to right now. Speaking of podcasts, Green Teacher is involved in another one. It's called Earthy Chats, and you know what? How about I let my co-host, Jade Harvey Barrel tell you the rest? Take it away, Jade. Thanks, Ian. Hello all. Indeed, we'd love for you to join us for Earthy Chats, our new podcast where we've come together to spend time picking the brains of the brightest and best in environmental education. Like busy bees, we'll be cross-pollinating ideas across our range of interests and knowledge bases to give you the inside scoop on what's new, who's doing it, and how you can do it too. All of the experts featured on the show have resources available Canada-wide in the Outdoor Learning Store. That's Canada's non-profit outdoor resource store. You can check out the range of educator and student resources available at www.outdoorlearningstore.ca. So whether you're a teacher, educator, parent or just a general nature geek, there'll be something for you to sink your teeth into. Did I cover everything there, Ian? Definitely. Thanks, Jade. So yeah, Earthy Chats. Check it out on your favorite podcast app. Florida is ripe and ready to get slammed by tropical weather. Filling up his creation with the doctor's newly developed and environmentally friendly alternative to jet fuel, Dr. Key dispatched Thermo to Florida to monitor the weather conditions there. Story 30. Putting yourself into the shoes of Thermo, I, I, actually I don't know if he truly has shoes, but figuratively speaking, putting yourself in yes. the shoes of Thermo. I think, I think he has little shoes. He does have little shoes, he does. Little bitty hands. And... Yeah. <laughs> so putting yourself in those little shoes of Thermo, what would give him reason to keep going, keep fighting the good fight? I think it's basically his relationships. Hmm. He, he has good relationships with his creator uh, and all the other climate scientists he meets. He, he loves uh, his little cloud friends, Fluffy and Puffy, in the first book. He likes interacting with Therma in the second. And he wants to, he keeps going because he wants to see all of his uh, friends and his family, so to speak, healthy and, and happy. And he doesn't want to see humans who he considers his brothers and sisters uh, suffering. So he wants a world that's sustainable and, and green and where people are living a happy life. So that's that's pretty much what 
keeps him going throughout the entire series. And as it is a story, though fictional, it is following a narrative of history that has happened and things that may come to pass. And may we all put ourselves into the shoes of Thermo, focus on those relationships and use that as motivation to get up every day in the morning and keep going and doing as best we can, both on a small and large scale. Yep, that's essentially it. And I hope everyone's uh, entertained by them, when, uh, we, especially after the second book gets published. And uh, we will just go from there and see what adventures or misadventures uh, Thurma gets into. Well, we look forward to the publication of the second book, as well as the third book, which is in progress. Thank you very much, Mr. Guy Walton, for joining us today. Okay. And thank you so much, Ian, for having me. And uh, thank you to the Green Teacher magazine for uh, letting me do this today and uh, maybe to get some more publicity on this uh, continuing project. Unruffled, the new friend smiled, shook her head and looked back toward her computer screen. It's nice to finally meet you, Thermo, she chuckled and then added faintly, you have a pretty big reputation considering you don't talk. Story 33. Talking with Green Teachers is co-hosted by Ian Shanahan and me, Sofia Vargas Nesi. Ian is the show's writer and editor. Logo design is by Devin Terian. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or iTunes to get instant access to each new episode. If you really like the show, give us a rating too. We can also be found wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us in this episode. We'll chat again soon. I already know one thing that I need to splice in. I said the Weather Network when I should have said the Weather Channel, but I can just splice that in and no one would know the difference. So, And the gremlins stayed away. <laughs> yes.